The following is a JourneyWise Network production. If you are a United Methodist, you have certainly heard the name of Tom Bickerton. Uh, Bishop Bickerton is currently the president of the Council of Bishops in the United Methodist Church, and he and I became friends several years ago when I spoke at the Western Pennsylvania Annual Conference. Over the last few years, many know of the struggles that have happened in the United Methodist Church and in the Wesleyan world altogether. But one of the most consistent voices in this time of transition has been Bishop Bickerton, who is the current bishop of the New York Annual Conference. I wanted to sit down with him and talk about the last few years of change and transition and how to help our faith give us strength and guidance as we go through both. I'm Shane Stanford. Welcome to the You Matter podcast, and this is our conversation with Bishop Tom Bickerton. Today, we are very excited to have with us uh, Bishop Tom Bickerton, uh, who is the bishop of the New York Annual Conference. And is that the official name mm-hmm. of the annual conference? Mm-hmm. And uh, I just learned from your administrative assistant that um, you are half of New York and half of Connecticut. Is that right? Not quite half of New York. I have Long Island, Staten Island, okay. Manhattan, the Hudson River Valley, Catskill Hudson Mountains, and half of Connecticut. Half of Connecticut. Yeah. Okay. 400, 413 churches. Okay. A lot of churches. Um, now, how long have you done this particular job here? And then maybe for those who don't know who you are, um, kind of tell us a little bit about who Tom Bickerton is. I'm in my seventh year as the resident bishop here in New York. I've been a bishop in the United Methodist Church since 2004. I served for 12 years in Western Pennsylvania. Prior to that, I was a district superintendent in West Virginia. So this is my 25th year of doing this kind of work sure. uh, for the church. Prior to that, I was a local church pastor for 21 years. Oh, wow. Which begins to reveal how old <laughs> I am. <laughs> it, it, you know what happens is people start doing math in your head, and you can see the oh, numbers yeah. flashing. Yep. Yes, I have had that happen quite <laughs> often lately. Um, what what drew you into vocational ministry? What Thinking of your calling, what was the thing that you remember that you said, yes, I can do that, or should do that? Uh, When Tom Bickerton was thinking, he thought he was going to be an optometrist. (laughs) Okay. And my my line always was, I felt my calling was to help people see better. I just kind of got the vocation mixed up. That's great. So when the calling came, um, it was a a bit of a pushback. I, I had been invited to become a youth pastor in central West Virginia while I was in college, and uh, the, the money attracted me as a fledgling college student, but I didn't want the job. Mm-hmm. I was focused on optometry uh, to the point that I was three hours late for the interview. Oh, my. <laughs> and I still got the job. <laughs> and what happened, I, you know, having been being a child of the church, I've known nothing but church life. Mm. And so that period of time, 18, 19 years old, I was my little rebellion. Um, But I found myself immersed in a congregation that saw something that I couldn't see. Mm. And so I attribute my calling to the nurturing and care of the people of Duff Street United Methodist Church in Clarksburg, West Virginia, who really nurtured me into an understanding of what God was really calling me to be. And uh, I remember driving my little Mercury Bobcat back to West Virginia Wesleyan College and pulling off the side of the road and and literally laying on the hood of the car (laughs) 
saying, you know, God, is this exactly what you want me to do? And that was a confirming night, and mm. I changed my major from biology and chemistry to sociology and psychology and haven't looked back since. Well, I, I knew that, um, that we somehow connected uh, because I was going to be a lawyer and wanted to get married and needed health insurance, and the, they needed a student pastor there you uh, go. in South Mississippi, and they convinced me, if you'll do this, at Justice Heights was the name of it. And so I took a major detour as well, but it was interesting how that first congregation, those first folks, really did um, uh, establish so much in my heart and my own spirit about what I would do for the rest of my life. It's amazing how God puts uh, folks at certain intersections in your life. Yeah, after after two years as a youth pastor, I I made the decision that I wanted to have a little bit of local church experience before mm. I went to seminary. Mm. So I went to local pastor's licensing school, and they gave me a six-point charge oh, gosh. <laughs> uh, outside of Buckhannon, West Virginia. And those six churches... Mm understood what their role was. Their role was to nurture student pastors into their vocation. Oh, that's wonderful. And so I followed that youth pastor's job into this amazing year that was an, an incubator of what I was going to face for years to come. But those people understood what they were getting in a student pastor. They weren't expecting something they weren't going to get. They just knew what their role was to help someone's calling become full, more fulfilled. And it was a wonderful experience. It got me ready for seminary and, again, didn't look back. Well, and I know there will be some people who are going to you know, use their fingers to start counting six points. Mm -hmm. You may want to explain how that worked. Did you do like three a Sunday or two a Sunday? How did that take? How did that work? Three a Sunday, 8, 30, 9, 30, 11 on one side of the charge, 7 o'clock on the other side. Wow. And then the next week flipped. flipped. Oh, wow. 8, 39, 30, 11, 7 on the other side. And, you know, I rode the, I rode the circuit uh, out the ridges of West Virginia. When, when, uh, when the snow flew, I put my girlfriend in the back part of the hatchback of that, of that Mercury Bobcat, the way down the back of the Bobcat, so we could get from one church to the next. <laughs> Amazing what you do in those, that period of time in your life. But it was, it was thrilling, exciting, and, and, uh, uh, I, I, to this day, credit those mm. people uh, for the way in which they nurtured me uh, into my calling. I, I once heard John Maxwell, the leadership guru and former Wesleyan pastor, uh, talk about Mr. Gus. He said everyone has a Mr. Gus or someone like that in their life who was at one of those intersections. Yep. Do you often think about any particular person or story that happened at those intersections in those oh, places? Oh, gosh, yeah. I mean... Um, in, in the in the youth pastor's job, it was um, it was the gas station attendant who was known as a, as the whistling gas station man, and and how he witnessed to his faith at the gas station, um, and and how he he lived out what we talked about on Sundays in his employment. He he integrated faith and practice for me. Um, when I think about the student appointment, there's just a whole host of people. Um, I, I remember a man by the name of Artzel Gillum, who, no matter where I was, if I was, if I was a significant moment in college, if it was a graduation, uh, if it was a funeral, if it was a special service, Mr. Gillum was there. Mm. And he oftentimes brought a homemade apple pie. Oh, that's great. And, uh, 
there were no apples and it was more like applesauce. I mean, it was the worst <laughs> apple pie you could ever have. But his sense of uh, of grace and hospitality were just amazing. I mean, there, there's, I I talk frequently about the fact that I am fully cognizant of the of the fact that I am not a self made person. Mm. Um, that I owe who I am to the intersections of people in my life. So I've been blessed to have as a bishop. I've been blessed to have a bishop as a part of my life from the time I was a little boy. An, an intimate relationship with a bishop at every intersection of the journey. Mm. And now I'm humbled to have that title. And so I, you know, I begin to think about what I've what I've been given mm. is what I need to give. Wow. And and so it's the it's the transfer that in you know the folks that are listening can't see the the ox yoke uh, that's above my door. It's the first thing I hang when I walk into my office. Um, my mentor at Duke Divinity School was that man on the wall, Bishop W. Kenneth Goodson. Mm. What used a great to walk, guy. Used to walk into his office. He had a yoke just like that. Wow. And he talked about the yoke of obedience, and used it as a as a prime illustration for how we were to focus ourselves as seminarians on the call to ministry. When Bishop Goodson died, I stopped at a at a um, uh, an antique store on the way home. That yoke was painted red, beet red and white. And uh, in the evenings, I uh, I've refinished it and sandpapered it down and stained it. And uh, it is my constant reminder that I'm not a self-made person. Mm. I I am the benefactor of a of any number of people at every stage of my life who have helped uh, get me to where I am to help frame who I, how I understand God, how I understand life. Mm. Um, my father just died two weeks ago. I'm sorry. We heard um, that. I'm so sorry yeah, about that. Yeah, appreciate that. Um, but, you know, he was, um, he was my father, my mentor, mm. my companion. Um, and so all of a sudden, as these mentors start to, to fade away, you begin to uh, think with gratitude that you wouldn't be really sitting here at all if it wasn't for the people that cared enough to shape who you are. Well, my wife and I just found out last week that we are, our first grandchild is a grandson, and uh, we're hey. very excited about that. Uh, we'll be born in August, but my grandfather was that person for me, Was helped shape me through being a young boy, being a hemophiliac, helped me pick up golf. We were a very sports-oriented family, and I couldn't play contact sports, so we ended up going to golf, and he was the one that would go and do that with me. And then when I found out I was HIV positive was the guy I sat on the hill with that mm -hmm. asked me, what are you going to do, you know, with this thing that you've been yeah. dealt? And so he was that point of that true North in a lot of ways right. that helped me move in that direction. Um, you know, when you think about the role that you have now, I know there's so much that people think that a bishop can do. But yet, I just have had experiences with the bishops that I've been privileged to work with have all been, and that's been the most important part of their work that they've done, has been being a true north, someone that you could go to in good or bad times that you could um, count on, you know, to have your best interests, but someone that was on the journey with you. You've had a you've had a lot of stuff happening over the last few years of your episcopacy. You've been the um, the president of the council. Are you still president of the council? Yeah, mm -hmm, I, I, am. Th I thought so. I was um, I was 
I don't know if you were hoping that would be history or what. Um, <laughs> not quite yet. Uh, not quite yet. Um, but a lot is happening in the United Methodist Church, um, a lot of points of intersection. And I think one of the things I see and hear from my colleagues is that mentorship. Uh, who's going to be and how those relationships are going to be defined colleague to colleague over the, the next generation. Mm -hmm. There seems so much that separates us. Um, what have you found about the relationship as a bishop that's different than when you were in ministry with someone? I know there's hierarchy and order, but sort of at that core level of those intersections. Well, I guess, Shane, the first thing I would say is I, 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 don't, I don't think about it as a bishop initially. Mm. Um, <clears throat> it, my grandfather was a, a huge influence in my life. And between he and my father... Uh, I guess the apple doesn't fall far from the tree because um, I take a lot of pride that I don't meet many strangers in my life. Mm. And, and I have a, I've, I had a most recent story uh, on an airplane. Uh, at what, how you benefit from initiating a conversation and what that conversation leads to in terms of being able to share your faith and plant seeds. I've always seen myself as a seed planter. Mm. I, I don't know how many of those seeds have borne fruit. But um, that's not the issue. The issue is, are you willing to plant the seeds? Mm. And that's that's been central to the expression of my Christian faith. The privilege of being a bishop in that role is uh, one where you can't put a price tag on it. Mm. There are perceptions about the role, that the bishops are autocratic, that uh, it's the top of the food chain, that it's... You know, it's the place where people's lives are impacted. I don't, I don't care whether it's making an appointment or, or sitting in a diner with one of my pastors that's struggling. Um, it's all about relationship. Yes. And um, what I have found over the last 17 years of doing this job is that I've had to deconstruct the job. There are perceptions about it that I don't care for. And the only way to address them is to deconstruct them. And you deconstruct them through the surprise of uh, the willingness to enter into relationship with people. Mm. So, you know, I think that uh, uh, I, I would like to think that the pastors and the laity that I've served in the two annual conferences I've been privileged to be a part of um, would remember me for the, for the relationship that I was willing to enter into with them. Mm. And that, that goes from everything to taking my ordinance to England and walking in the footsteps of John Wesley to acknowledging in the midst of the COVID pandemic and post-COVID reality that people's lives are falling apart and they need somebody that cares about them, somebody that will listen to mm. their struggles. And so the surprise factor oftentimes kicks in that actually my bishop is that person mm. and that there's no more higher honor, privilege, gift that anyone that can be given than to, than to be called a mentor and a friend. And so that's what I cling to. Hmm. It's not about the the authority of the job. It's about the privilege the job offers. Well, and one of the reasons I asked the question is because I think a lot of people perceive if I can just have that role or that position, then I can make things better. And what we're finding in these conversations on this podcast, we've uh, we've interviewed Johnny Bench, uh, who's a 
former catcher, probably, the, I think, the greatest catcher For ever. For that rival team that I don't have much to do with, being I, a Pittsburgh Pirate fan. I understand, and we <laughs> and I do like the Pirates, a Clemente fan, but, uh, you know, you, you can only do so much. That's right. Um, uh, the Cincinnati Reds. But uh, we've also interviewed a guy that's over a very $80 billion company, all have particular roles, and all three of you have said it's about relationships. That is the common denominator in these conversations. And everyone has an opportunity in whatever relationships they have to plant seeds, healthy seeds, um, places where you can help someone, that you can allow someone to help you, which I think is also a, mm -hmm. a wonderful. Friends, I'm so excited that you're joining us today on this episode of the You Matter podcast, where we look at individuals who in one frame or another in life have mattered at whatever intersection God had planted them. Well, uh, we also want to encourage you to go to our website at journeywise.network, and you'll see more information and resources about who we are. One of the special resources that we have is part of our Life Along the Way series. Wouldn't it be great to be able to walk every day with Jesus? Well, we've created a resource that's 360 days. You get five days of rest every year, 360 days. And as you make it through each of these four 90-day devotionals, you will have covered all four Gospels and the first chapter of Acts in chronological order so that you literally have spent a year with Jesus. Again, thank you for joining us today and enjoy the rest of the podcast. When you think of... Uh where we are right now in the in the church, and I'm not asking you to talk specifically about the United Methodist Church at this point, but in terms of just a, a world that seems so divided and so pulled apart, what do you think is the missing ingredient as to why relationships are so mistrusted? Hmm. <clears throat> I live with the assumption today, and I don't think it's off base, that organized religion is in trouble. Hmm. And it's in trouble because of assumptions that it's made. It has assumed uh, that people would believe the message. It's assumed that people would understand that it is about relationship. Um, it's assumed that it was attractive and relevant. Mm. And <clears throat> what we've discovered in recent years is that those assumptions cannot be relied on anymore. Um, and what we're hearing from emerging generations, and, and in my particular denomination, we're dealing with upwards of three generations of people who've made a decision to do something else than to affiliate with our church. And so there's a huge void in the pews of our churches with generations that are investing in other things than organized religion. The basis of that, in my estimation, comes from the reality that I believe rightly so in many cases what the church has proclaimed on Sunday is not what the church has lived out on Monday. And the, and the void of that consistency has revealed, was well, a blunt word, has revealed the hypocrisy of organized religion. Yeah. And so um, we're really in a challenging place where it is incumbent upon us uh, to not expect that when the doors are open, people are going to come. But when the doors are open, the leadership goes out, walking the streets. Do you know the fire chief, the police chief? Um, are you aware of the homeless population in your area? Do are you are you in touch with the realities of racism or sexism or gender bias that exists in a community? 
How much are you aware mm. of what's happening in the school system? Yes. Do people know you by name? Yes. Um, that's where it makes all the difference. So it's backdoor evangelism. Mm. Uh, you, you, you prove it. And then the aha moment comes is that people begin to realize you've done that in the name of Jesus Christ. Mm. And you know Jack Matters, Marshall sure. Matters. Well, he, he was the, the bishop that took a chance on me when I was being ordained. And he showed man. A, a wonderful man. And um, his wife, Hannah, was amazing. Um, he would put a picture up at annual conference, and it's the story of Jesus knocking on the door. And uh, he asked, he said, what do you think people, what, what do you think this picture is about? And people, you know, Jesus is knocking, wanting you to let him in. And he said, nope, Jesus is knocking, wanting you to come out. <laughs> and I can remember that there was a, this pushback at, at our annual conference about that. And I, did, I never really understood why that bothered some people the way it did. But that causes you to have to invest yourself in people who are not like you, people who don't go to the same places you do, haven't had the same history, that don't look like you, maybe don't have the same narrative that you do. But it, it's interesting that in the Gospels, which is the ministry that I'm a part of now, that's love Jesus, love like Jesus, is the story over and over again of Jesus meeting, not waiting for people to be where he was, but he's showing up in the midst of the life or the, the journey or whatever it might be. Why is it so difficult for people to do that? To, you talk about organized religion. Just talk about the church. Why is it that we find it so difficult in order to be relational the way Jesus was relational, to do those things the way that Jesus clearly teaches in the gospel? You know, I thought a great deal about that, and I, I think there are probably multiple answers, but the the one thing that I always come back to is is directly tied to what I just said about organized religion. Mm -hmm. I think that organized religion is having a crisis of spirituality. Mm -hmm. um, that that spirituality really is at the heart of what we are called to do and be as Christians. Mm -hmm. And if we don't if we don't have that active relationship with God in our hearts. We, we don't feel the compelling need to share it with others. And so in organized religion today, we, we are just eager for people to come and hear what we have to say mm. about God mm. rather than find the, the, the strength of spirit that can only come from the presence of God in our lives that compels us to go out and share it with others. Mm. I, I think it's a crisis of spirituality. Mm. Um, mm. Like we have assumed so much in our Christian faith that we have we have just not focused on the need. I'm I'm talking in the United Methodist Church these days uh, that if the if the United Methodist Church is going to find its way forward, we have to reclaim, revive, renew, mm -hmm. and um, whether it's racism or sexual bias, mm -hmm. um, we need a conversion. The only way that an individual, I believe, becomes an anti-racist, for example, is when they have that version of a conversion moment that causes them to say, my current behavioral pattern is not compatible with Christian teaching, and I need to make a shift, a change, a pivot in how I see the world and see others. The same principle applies across the board with any injustice, any issue, um, any depth mm. of our spiritual lives 
demands one conversion after another. I say to my pastors all the time, when is the last time that Jesus became more than just a name to you? Mm. So it's, you know, I say I was converted on June the 23rd, 1973, and I've been in the process of being converted every day since then. Mm. That's that whole concept of sanctification becoming more and more like the face of Christ. If you're not working it, Mm. constantly working it, looking at the ways where I need to improve and grow in grace and love of neighbor, you, you grow stagnant before you know it. Why do you think as a culture, though, especially since uh, 2016, um, you know, there's nowhere in the Gospels where Jesus uh, assumed that any of his folks all agreed on the same thing. <laughs> it never happens in the Gospel. Yeah. I mean, I can be in a room by myself and not agree on everything. I mean, I can have internal you know, disagreements among myself, and my wife and I laugh all the time. We certainly don't agree on everything and, and all the time. But yet we live in a world where the litmus tests have become about um, do you agree with everything or nothing? Or nothing. And um, it's interesting that um, a, a new study that just came out that found that, uh, a Barna study that found that um, almost when people will go to a local church, they find that they agree with about 80% of what everyone else in the congregation say they agree on. But they make their decision about staying in that local church based on the four or five percent of things that they may not agree on. I mean, I'm a baseball fan. That would win me three batting titles, that kind of percentage. <laughs> it would. Um, I, I, what, what has happened to us? And I think I know the answer, but I've asked this of all of, my, uh, of, all of our, our guests. What has caused us as a society to move so much in that direction? To me, it's, uh, it relates a great deal to uh, fear mm. and um, a, a desire to be affirmed for who you are and what you believe. We look for allies. Mm. We look for people who nod their head and say, yes, I agree with you. And we've, we've lost the art of civil disagreement. Mm. You know, there... Um, I, I tell the story about being a student at Duke Divinity School in American Christianity class. Dr. Stuart Henry would come to class wearing a, a gray suit and a white shirt and a gray tie every single class. <laughs> and if you came into Dr. Henry's class at 8.02, he would stop in mid-sentence until you found your seat, and then he would pick right up where he left off. You were never late for Dr. Henry's class. He was rigid <laughs> sure. and firm. So we as students decided at Christmas time we were going to buy him three print dress shirts. So we, we gave him the shirts. He opened the gift. He said, I'm, I've never had a class this gracious to me. I'm so grateful for this gift. I just have one question. Do you have the receipt? <laughs> and he said, uh, and he used to call us boys and girls. He said, boys and girls, this is a teaching moment. You like print shirts. I like white shirts. Hmm. We can disagree and still be friends. Still be friends. Wow. So I think, you know, in any in any encounter that we have with with the public, it's incumbent upon uh, on many of us to set the stage where disagreement is acceptable. Sure. And that it's it's nothing to be threatened by, it's nothing to be afraid of. We can disagree and still be friends. Relationship is not dependent upon agreement. Relationship is dependent upon a conviction mm. that there's something in you 
that I can benefit from that will help me become more the face of Jesus if mm -hmm. I care enough to enter into that relationship with you. Our, our fear of rejection is the huge issue in front of us. We think that we won't be accepted, we won't be loved, we won't be authenticated unless somebody agrees with what we say. And we look for those pockets of places where we can get nothing but that affirmation. That stifles me because I, I want to be pressed. I want to be held accountable. I want to see what I haven't seen before. And the joy of that, um, and the, but the absence of the joy of that is what's really causing us our heartache, I think. Um, we're not seeing it as an opportunity. Well, and I think uh, social media and communication has become to where you can now um, you Everybody's can, an expert. Exactly. Uh, I don't know if you've seen the new uh, ad that's out. I think it's the Anti-Defamation League where the father and son are sitting mm -hmm. in the car. You know, you sit behind, you know, anonymous and you say these things. If you've got something to say, say it to their faces and the sun shrinks, shrinks back. Isn't that a great commercial? Oh, it's wonderful. It's I, fantastic. And I wish that we could somehow understand that. I, I think people look at that situation and go, oh, I would never say that. I would never be anti-Semitic. But yet... We are doing things that are creating and presenting a world a lot of times that makes it easier for those who do feel so, you know, um, extreme about their views. They feel like that those views are accepted. I couldn't agree more. Um, in terms of crisis and dealing with crisis, uh, you know, we in the United Methodist Church, and, and I've, I've lived in it now 30 years, um, we have faced a, a very significant or at a very significant crossroads. What what is your hope for the future of the church right now? Well, these guys know because we've been talking about that even today. Mm -hmm. um, there's a colleague of ours, Jim Harnish, who mm -hmm. loves to say, uh, thank goodness windshields are bigger than rearview mirrors. <laughs> um, that if all we do is look back uh, and never look forward, we're just going to crash every time. But thank goodness that there's a rearview mirror. Mm -hmm. So I think the first answer to your question, the hope comes from the knowledge that this is not the first time a crisis has happened in organized religion. Mm. History is cyclical. It repeats itself. Sometimes we try to reinvent the wheel when all we need to do is look back and lean on what happened in the past and, and how there was a way that that was navigated that enabled us to be where we are today. That's point number one. Point number two, neither you and I are in charge. We have a faith that believes that, that God will see us through and that if we set our eyes and sights on the hope that's provided by God's love and God's direction, we can find our way through. Um, I have a, on my desk, I have a little post-it note. We had a, we had a woman right at the advent of, of COVID speak to our laity here in New York. And she, I was sick. I had the flu. So I, I agreed to come in through the back door and give a greeting and leave. So I came in to give my greeting. Sue was leaving, and she saw the, uh, me standing at the microphone. She turned around at a microphone in the, in the uh, hallway, and she said, I just have one thing to say to you before I leave. She said, Bishop, I need you to remember this. Hmm. You have been given this storm to show others that it can be navigated. Mm. And she turned and walked away. Wow. COVID hit, mm. post-COVID hit, the crisis of the church hit. I'm now as the president of the Council of Bishops right in the heat of the fire. 
And I remember Sue's statement every single day that I, I believe every obstacle is an opportunity. I believe that, that God is in the midst of the storm. And I believe that all things work together for good for those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. I have been given this storm to show others that it can be navigated. That requires me to keep my faith strong. Mm. It requires me to keep my, my sight set on not in the moment, but on the future. Um, it, it causes me to be accused of being a naive optimist, which I thank people when they say that. If I, they accuse me of having a childlike faith or being a naive optimist, I'm grateful. Absolutely. Uh, because I think that's, that's the insight to the keys of the kingdom that we oftentimes neglect or don't even look for. So, mm. um, you know, sorry to be glib. My hope is built on nothing less than <laughs> Jesus' blood and righteousness. I love like, it. We ask a couple of questions of every guest. Uh, the first is, is we have a, a strong uh, focus on mental health, faith and wellness in, in our ministry and on our podcast. What are you doing and have been doing to take care of Tom during all of this? <laughs> Good question. Good question. Uh, I have two full-time jobs. Um, we're dealing with sustainability issues here in New York that are just all-consuming. Mm -hmm. um, we're, we're right in the heat of disaffiliations uh, in the midst of the United Methodist Church, and I'm at the epicenter of all those things. Mm -hmm. um, I am, I'm, I'm more tired than I've ever been, um, and yet um, I, I find ways to sleep at night. I find ways to... Uh, go hit a bucket of golf balls. I won't tell you whose names are written on those balls when I hit them. Um, I have faces. Oh yeah, my, there you yes. go. I, uh, I I lean heavily on my relationship with my wife, Sally. Hmm. Um, my greatest gift has been the advent of these three grandchildren. Oh, wow. Um, I, I say fondly that I'm in the soul transfer business. I love it. And uh, my mission in life is to is to give them what they need so that they can carry the hope into the future mm -hmm. um they they will know pop and they will know what pop means mm. and and that that soul transferring work gives me more life than anything i can describe to you um i've also come clearly to the realization that life is short mm. um i blinked my eyes and i'm 64 going on 65 years of age i've blinked my eyes and i'm I'm, I'm now the elder statesman of my family. I blink my eyes and I'm just a few years from retirement. Um, my father who just passed, uh, every, my dad was on kidney dialysis three days a week uh, for six years. Wow. He fell and broke three vertebrae in his neck. And he was, a, he was a, a mold maker for a glass factory and later in retirement became a master whittler. He whittled mm. that staff. Oh, wow. Um, my father, in the midst of every obstacle that he faced, if he were living today and we were on the phone, before we left the call, he would say, remember, boys, every day is a gift. Mm. There's no guarantee for tomorrow. Take advantage of every opportunity that you have today. Mm. And I live with that motto every day of my life. It is short. There are no guarantees about it. And there's a need to capitalize on it. So I take care of Tom. Mm by focusing on the joy of the moment. Um, I, I lean on uh, a sense of humor. <laughs> I, I lean on the great value of, um, well, let's just look at today. 
I get I get to see the two of you, mm. um, and and that's a gift uh, you. that you you fed me today just by being in your presence. Mm. Wow, that is uh, it. I would have loved to have met your father. I can tell he was such a wonderful man. I can tell um, he taught you how to make every day count. Yeah, that's and that, right. That is a gift that you can pass down from generation to generation. Um, I will tell you that um, the first time I, you invited me to do a Bible study in Western Pennsylvania, right. and uh, the the gentleman that and you learn a lot by the people that that people send to meet you, and um, uh, different places. And the guy that picked me up at the airport, I asked him. I said, "Well, tell me about Bishop Bickerton. You know, I don't know him very well." And he looked at me and he went, you know what? He's just a really good guy. And I thought, you know, is there any better compliment in the world that you can get from someone? He didn't say, oh, he's a tough bishop or, oh, boy, he's so smart or whatever. Uh, resumes and CVs can convey all that information, but a really good guy. Yeah. Last question. Um, the name of the podcast is You Matter. Where do you think... Tom Bickerton matters most right now, where, where God has you planted. Where do you matter the most for the kingdom? I must preface the answer by saying that when I was in my first appointment in Shady Spring, West Virginia, in August of that year, my first year, a woman came out and said, Reverend Pickleman, that was one of the best sermons I've ever heard. That same woman, I, I baptized her grandchildren. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm married, uh, performed the wedding for one of her daughters. I buried her husband. I sat by her bedside when she had breast cancer. Mm -hmm. Six years later, when I left, she said, I'll never forget you. Mm -hmm. And I was one of those people that when I left, I left. Mm -hmm. But six years later, they called and said, would you come back for a series of services? I called the pastor, got his approval, came back, parked my car, walked into the fellowship hall. Edith was the very first person that greeted me at the door. She hugged me and said, Tim, I've really missed you since you've been gone. <laughs> and so I say to my pastors all the time, when you get the big head, you're nothing but a Tim Pickleman waiting to happen. <laughs> that That's so, going to be the quote of the series right now. I, <laughs> I love that. So, so I can't answer your question without the sobering reality that you are only, as I say frequently, you are only a letter in a sent a letter in a word in a sentence, in a paragraph, in a chapter of a very long book. Mm. But if that letter isn't present, that word doesn't make sense, and the sentence structure doesn't flow, and the paragraph can be disjointed, and the chapter doesn't make any sense, and the whole book is altered because of that one letter that is missing from that book, you matter. You matter. So where does, wow. where does Tom Bickerton matter? Um, I'm a letter in the big story of life, just a letter. Mm. I'm not a chapter. I'm not a book. I'm just a letter. Um, but I'm an important letter. Mm. And uh, I don't expect people to remember my name. Mr. Rogers used to say, in a, in a, in a world where you can be anything, be kind. Mm. Yes. Um, I want to be kind. I, I want to I be gentle. I want to love people. I want them to know that they're loved. I want them to feel that they matter. Mm. Um, if if I can make them feel that they matter, I think I matter. Mm. That's great. Um, but my motivation is not me mattering. My motivation is always, how can I help someone have a brighter day than what they've had? Well, guys, you heard it here from uh, Tim uh, Pickleman, uh, Bishop Tom Bickerton. 
Um, what a great message. Uh, Bishop, thank you so much. Thanks, Shane. Wish you well in all your endeavors. Thank great you. to see you. You too. Bless Thanks. you. Uh, take a moment, if you would, to please hit that subscribe button. And we also need you to do a five-star rating. And then, of course, we would love a review. We are a ministry of JourneyWise Network, and we would love to hear back from you. So go to journeywise.network and send us a message that we can share. God bless you.